In times like the ones we're facing now, what artists do you turn to when you need some comfort? If the answer is Shakespeare, you've come to the right podcast. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. We're doing things a little differently in this episode. It's a special edition of Shakespeare Unlimited for what we might call special times. A conversation among friends on the idea of turning to Shakespeare for comfort in times of stress and uncertainty. You'll also be hearing from a number of friends of the podcast and people who've appeared here before. We asked them to share the Shakespeare passages they turn to when times are rough. You'll hear those throughout the show. As always, Barbara Bogave is our host, and surprise, one of the guests is me. The other is the woman who preceded me in the Folger Director's office, our Director Emerita and the editor of Shakespeare Unlimited, Gail Kern Pastor. We call this podcast, One Thing to Rejoice and Solace In. And now, Barbara, I'm going to toss it to you, as I always do. Take it away. Oh, thank you so much, Mike. And first, it is so nice to have you on the podcast with Gail as well. And both Delighted. Of you in, I'm so glad to have you here. And I hear both of you are in good health, which, of course, is the very first thing I wanted to know. It's just an embarrassment of riches. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Barbara. Okay. Uh, first, I have to admit, I had to look up whether embarrassment of riches came from Shakespeare. And it doesn't. <laughs> uh, why don't we start with a really basic question before we get to our wonderful passages? Because I don't think it is a foregone conclusion that you would look to Shakespeare for solace necessarily. I mean, do you both find yourself turning to Shakespeare in times of crisis? And if you do, what are you looking for? Why don't you start, Gail? Um, I go in my imagination, I think, to Shakespeare. That is to say, I don't really go to the books, but I go to my head. And in my head, I think of characters, I think of lines, I think of moments that give me pleasure, bring me good memories, and I think that's where I find the solace. In your memories. Oh, that's interesting. Mike, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think Shakespeare's actually got a pretty grim view of what human beings are capable of. So you might not be the first person you go to, but alongside that, there's a real hopefulness and a belief that the human imagination is something that that ennobles us and lets us make a different world. Sometimes I think his realism probably makes us more successful primates, but it's the dreaming that he does that makes us really human. Oh, yeah. And you get both from it. I mean, I was thinking on a much more basic level. (laughs) I mean, which makes sense. I think anyone who listens to this podcast has caught on that I am no Shakespeare scholar. Um, And I mean, there are a couple things I was thinking that you wouldn't want to turn to something that you do professionally for comfort. Well, you know, one of my kids once said to me, Mom, can't you turn it off? (laughs) And, and the truth is, at, the at a certain point, you, you just can't. I mean, lines emerge in your head or they come out of your mouth without your ever really even thinking. And, Mike, I know you have a whole list of, uh, <laughs> well, so, I mean, zingers, yeah. really. I, no, what I lines do have a, came to you? I, I do have a list because when things get tricky or when it feels like we're living in another reality, I do think about Shakespeare. I can't stop. And I tend to think of short phrases, and they sometimes jump out at me, and they're not really, what I want to hear from them are not the same as what they mean in the passage, but that's okay. And uh, I think Shakespeare gives us wonderful short bursts of words that that really spur us on. So if you want to hear some, I'll I'll tell you about them. Hit us. Sure. Okay. Well, my first one is one of my favorites. Action is eloquence. Get going. (laughs) You can do it, and you should do it. So now's the time. Another okay, one. That's bracing. So that that just you yeah. carry that around with you. Is that kind of like a mantra for you? Oh, I I love that. That action is. Oh, I love eloquence because that's what Shakespeare was good at. But action is something. Action makes the point. And now's right. the time for us to do things. Okay. So I, so I let me more. give you a, a a couple of others. So these are these are what you would call commonplaces. In the Renaissance, people like me would have their own book, and you'd write the short phrases under little headings, and you'd take those phrases and recycle them. Um, I'm giving you more of my 
commonplace book. Here's another one. Uh, they do not love that do not show their love. I recall this one when I'm thinking, boy, there's no sense in keeping to yourself. It's time to connect and uh, don't be subtle. Great Shakespearean monosyllables. Well, All that right. really speaks to right now, too. Yeah, Yeah. You, it's time for us to show that we still think of each other. And at 7 o'clock, you can bang your pot. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> or get show Zoom. your love and show your love and thanks. Okay, yeah, I'm loving these short ones. Okay, what I'm going to give you a couple more short ones. Uh, one of my favorites. This is from Troilus and Cressida. One touch of nature makes the whole world kin. We're all human, uh, every one of us, but we share a common nature, and this is what draws us together. And I, I do feel like it speaks to my desire to feel like I'm in the boat with everybody else. And then, this is my favorite one, I think. Truth makes all things plain. Truth makes all things plain does what it says. It's simple, it's direct, and so are the facts. And in this particular moment, we really do need facts, and it's the thing we long for in addition to connection. So that's my favorite five-word phrase for the thing we're experiencing now. Oh, I love that. I mean, facts, in this case, they kind of buffet us. I feel myself buffeted on the wings of facts as they come at us. It seems like they're contradictory, but I also cling to them. What else do we have? Gail, what are your favorite passages? What's what's hitting you? Well, <laughs> one of them is kind of odd at this moment because it's the Duke in As You Like It, and he says to his exiled band of courtiers, sweet are the uses of adversity. And in the play itself, it comes off as sheer rationalization. But I think for those of us who are trying to cope with isolation and, and solitude, we better find the sweet uses of adversity or else we'll be really in a bad place. Oh, that's beautiful. It's so interesting. Everyone has a different take. And I'm thinking now, let's hear some of the passages that our, our guests have sent us because they also really run the gamut. Here's a first one. Hi, this is Ian Desher, the author of the William Shakespeare's Star Wars series and the Pop Shakespeare series. A quote from Shakespeare that has always brought me solace is from Hamlet, Act 5, uh, where Hamlet and Horatio are speaking just before the duel uh, with Laertes. And Hamlet says to Horatio, um, he's talking about sort of accepting the things that are going to come his way, uh, no matter what they are. And this is a quote that's been with me for a long time, uh, and uh, I hope you enjoy it as well. If it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. I hope that that brings you some solace during this time. Now, that is a very famous passage, and there's a lot to be said about that. And I think this is one of your go-tos, Gail. Is that right? It is absolutely one of my go-tos. And I think it's important to put it in the context of the play, which is that Hamlet has been trying to figure out what he ought to do, what his mode of action or inaction ought to be. And and he's been perplexed by the ambiguity that he sees in the world around him. And here, speaking to Horatio, is the moment where he says, I accept the limits of my knowledge, and I bow to circumstance, and yet I am ready for circumstance. And I think, to me, that's what I hug to my heart. I think the readiness is all, is, says almost everything I want to say. I, I have nothing to add to that. It is both comforting and inspiring. Um, uh, moving on, here's someone who's so well-known. I guess he barely needs an introduction, uh, but I'll give it anyway. He's the longtime Royal Shakespeare Company member and an actor who's starred in a lot of films and television, including Masterpiece Theaters, I, Claudius. It's the lovely Sir Derek Jacobi, and here's what he sent us this weekend. This is Shakespeare's sonnet number 30. When to the sessions of sweet, silent thought I summon up remembrance of things past, I sigh the lack of many a thing I sought, And with old woes new wail my dear time's waste. 
Then can I drown an eye unused to flow for precious friends hid in death's dateless night and weep afresh love's long since cancelled woe and moan the expense of many a vanished sight. Then can I grieve at grievances foregone and heavily from woe to woe tell o'er the sad account of forbemoaned moan, which I knew pay as if not paid before. But if the while I think on thee, dear friend, all losses are restored and sorrows end. Wow. I know. Wow. Right. And while That's he's the person reading, you want to yes. have reading to you. <laughs> Invite him to dinner. Get him over here. <laughs> oh, Lord. It, the way he hits that last couplet, which is a wonderful mixture of an argument and emotion together. And at that last two lines, as Derek read it, there's the moment that you think upon someone that you really care about and you get this sense of something being restored. I, I, I think, I think it's, it's so, so perfect. Touching. It is. There's such a tenderness and a lightness in his there's a presence. Real, there's a real perfect uplift. You know, the, I mean, the trajectory of that sonnet is from a, de- a very dark place to liberation and release. And there is a certain amount of wishing in that couplet, all sorrows end. But it still speaks so powerfully to the power of connection with one human being to another. And I think that's what we need to take from it at this moment. Mm, yeah, and, and allowing yourself to feel despite all that. I, I mean, the line was hitting me differently than I when I read this in the past as he was reading the uh, For Precious Friends Hid in Death's Dateless Night. Dateless Pure oblivion time. right there. Yeah, yeah. He was very young when he wrote this. Oh, he was in his 30s, I would say. That sounds pretty young to me. <laughs> yeah, and yet he really knew death. I'm well, he had experienced, don't, let's not forget that Shakespeare, like everyone who lived in England at the time, was well acquainted with periodic visitations of the plague. And the plague would confine his, they, first of all, it would close the theaters. And second of all, it would confine everybody into the city. Uh, so he knew plague well, better than we. Have you been thinking of this sonnet in these past few weeks, either one of you? You know, I when I heard Derek read it, it reminded me of this. I wouldn't immediately have gone to it because it is so deep in the darkness of death. Yeah. And only a really great performer can make those two last lines become a lift, but they really are. Well, we had Shakespeare scholar and writer James Shapiro on the podcast not too long ago, and he also suggested to us a passage that is a very stark reckoning with death. And he's not reading this. It comes from the Archangel Shakespeare series, which you can find online. And Jim says that he finds himself recalling this next passage on a daily basis because he lives in New York and he passes a refrigerator truck uh, by a hospital on his daily masked walk past uh, it. It's near its home. And he thinks of these lines from Cymbeline, which he finds strangely comforting. Fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages. Thou thy worldly task hast done, whom art gone and ta'en thy wages. Golden lads and girls all must, as chimney sweepers, come to dust. Fear no more the frown of the great, thou art past the tyrant's stroke. Care no more to clothe and eat, to thee the reed is as the oak. The scepter, learning, physic must, all follow this, and come to dust. Fear no more the lightning flash, nor the all-dreaded thunderstone. Fear no slander, censure rash. Thou hast finished joy and moan. All lovers young, all lovers must, consign to thee and come to dust. No exorciser harm thee, nor no witchcraft charm thee. Ghost unlaid forbear thee, nothing ill come near thee. Quiet consummation have. And renowned be thy grave. I get why Jim said he found these lines strangely comforting. I do love this active 
ending, the, the caring expressed in it. Um, Mike, can you remind us what the context is for this in the play? Well, it's actually a duet, and most of the first, uh, it's delivered by two brothers who are actually royal princes, but they, they don't know that, so they live a life of lives of rustic uh, shepherds. And uh, this piece is delivered as a kind of a performance. It ends with a benediction, uh, but the first part is really about the oblivion that comes from death and the fact that death annihilates all forms of honor and achievement. So it's really interesting that at the end it switches into this almost benediction, which says, go forth, fear no more, have no harm. And that consummation at the end, uh, which is going to be peaceful, is actually death. So this is a passage that would actually prepare you for more life or for the end of life. Mm. Gail, thoughts? Well, I think this is how we talk to the dead. This is how we both comfort ourselves by knowing what our loved ones who may have been suffering before they died, what they are being spared from. Fear no more. And that the death, there's a kind of safety in death, that they are safe from harm. And I think that the the benediction is the benediction that we give to the dead when we consign them either to the afterlife or to our or within ourselves because in, they are safe from harm within ourselves. Oh, that is beautifully put. I, I mean, I, I was thinking along those lines and that you don't stop caring for your loved ones after they die. You still have this relationship. You still talk to them. But the benediction does give you some closure. Um, it is so interesting what people find consoling. Let's listen to another one of our guests, director Iqbal Khan. Hello, my name is Iqbal Khan, and I'm a theatre director based in the UK, and I've worked with the works of Shakespeare for most of my life, and they have always provided consolation to me, and do so now in these very difficult times. However, the lines that give me particular comfort are often those that articulate hard-earned compassion in a world that's often inexplicably cruel, as in this extract from Lear. This is Lear talking to the blinded Gloucester. If thou wilt weep my fortunes, take my eyes. I know thee well enough. Thy name is Gloucester. Thou must be patient. We came crying hither. Thou knowest the first time that we smell the air, we wall and cry. I will preach to thee, Mark. When we are born, we cry that we are come to this great stage of fools. That's, that scene just slays me. It's really hard to talk about without choking up. And I think what's important to remember here is the journey that Lear has been on. It's a journey from narcissism and self-pity where the only person he could feel sorry for was himself. And he comes face to face with a blinded Gloucester. And here is a moment of relatively few in the play, but this is a, mo a moment of great compassion and empathy. And we recognize the full force of this turn outward to recognize the suffering of another. Yeah, it really is the Shakespearean journey, especially for older men, where they have to make this transition from being self-absorbed to actually becoming undefended and connecting with someone else who, who has just a pure need. And that's certainly what Gloucester presents. I really love the monosyllables, again, when Shakespeare uses those short words, he's saying something ultimate, I think. And this idea that we're all born in the same circumstances, I think, is another one of those equalizing statements. And that is what sickness and ultimately what death can do. But it's also what sympathy and empathy can do. They can put us all on a level. Oh, that's true. And we, most of us remember, I mean, the, the famous line is to this great stage of fools, but it's the, if thou wilt weep my fortunes, take my eyes. The way 
Iqbal Khan mm. read that. Oh, oh yeah. Um, what What do you both think? Do you find yourself reading Lear when you are sad or facing hard times? What about you, Gail? You know, it's interesting. Charles Lamb said that the play was unstageable because it was so full of pain. And I will say that every time I taught it, the the pain in that play, which is overwhelming, just was borne in upon me. And it didn't make it hard to teach, but it is the most painful of the plays. And it's just... The, the, you just need to recognize that agony um, and recognize that the agony doesn't really end at the end of the play. And when Lear says, what cause in nature makes these hard hearts? And he's talking about Reagan and Goneril. The answer this play gives you is kindness and cruelty are equally part of, the, of human nature, that we are as cruel, we are as capable of cruelty as we are of kindness. And it, right, yeah. and you have to stare both of them down. Mike? Yeah, I, I think staring, and staring both of them down is right. It's a godless play, and in a way it shows that human beings, particularly our capacity for real sympathy and also just facing up to things, it is in a way the main show. <laughs> Because we're alone out there on the plane. I'm sure there are other ways of reading the play, but for me, it's full of ultimates. And actually, this is about the biggest dose of Lear that I would like right now. Because it's so tough. But I mean, I think one of the things about Lear, and one of the reasons that Shakespeare puts him out in the storm, is that Shakespeare is really trying to draw a distinction between the suffering that you get from the natural world and the suffering you get at the hands of others. It's a very clear distinction yes. in this play. Yeah, and I, we I and right. the worst is the worst we get from each other. One other thing to say about that passage is that a play like Lear shows that human beings are maybe most themselves when they're at their most extreme. And it's these big trials that bring those extremes out. And I do think that's part of what we're facing today. Well, if you'll forgive me, Mike, we do have another Lear quote, but it's a good thing that it's a positive one. And it's strangely... <laughs> Told you I can't take it. I can't take it. <laughs> well, as, as everyone says, Lear encompasses everything. But uh, this it one does. is it's... just strangely resonant in this um, quarantine time. And it comes from actor Fran Kranz. He was in Joss Whedon's Much Ado and Casey Waldermott's Midsummer Night's Dream and also the Hollywood feature film, one of my favorite movies, Cabin in the Woods. Hello, Shakespeare Unlimited and Folger fans. This is Fran Kranz. Today I've selected a passage from King Lear that I'd love to read. It's a favorite passage of mine and not only gives me comfort, but has come to mind many times in the last month and a half. Uh, I actually played King Lear in high school and... There was one passage in particular that at the time I felt like I I never really connected with this moment of the play. And later in life, you know, when I well, when I became a father and I remember I was speaking to my high, uh, high school class and uh I got it all of a sudden. And that as a father, there's there's really nothing you'd rather do than be with your child. And in these difficult times under quarantine, finding the positive side of things can be challenging. But when you're home alone with your child, you're doing all that matters. And so this is the passage I'm going to read and enjoy. No, 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 no. Come, let's away to prison. We two alone will sing like birds in the cage. When thou dost ask me blessing, I'll kneel down and ask of thee forgiveness. So we'll live and pray and sing and tell old tales and laugh at gilded butterflies and hear poor rogues talk of court news. And we'll talk with them too, who loses and who wins, who's in, who's out and take upon the mystery of things as if we were God's spies, and will wear out in a walled prison packs and sects of great ones that ebb and flow by the moon. 
I love that Fran sent us this. I mean, he set it up so well, and it really speaks to this, the fraught, the conflict of enjoying this time, despite this horrible backdrop of suffering and pain and, and death, if, if you are lucky enough to have a home and food and family and, and creature comforts, because you, you feel guilty if you enjoy that. But really, it's all that matters. Can I ask you, I love the line, as if we were God's spies, but I, I'm not sure what it means. I think it means they're set up at one remove from the world, and they're looking on instead of being um, forced to act and live out the drama that they're seeing. There's a hard way to read this passage, too, because he is so clearly kidding himself, kidding himself and Cordelia in in terms of their circumstances. So I think that there's a kind of a yin-yang in the passage. And probably to be fair to the passage, we ought to acknowledge that. Yes, but you gave us license to take what we want from Shakespeare. Because that is what we we do. That's right. Although in the play, you're right. You feel like, oh, there's his delusion speaking, and that's what's so heartbreaking. Well, okay, that's enough Lear for for everybody. But moving on, uh, one of our guests looked to Shakespeare for, really for a call to arms. Uh, Keith Hamilton Cobb created American Moore. It's a one-man show about a black actor auditioning for a white director who just just doesn't get it about Othello and, and blackness. I'm Keith Hamilton Cobb. When I was asked to contribute a piece of Shakespeare, I found it difficult because so much of the language of Shakespeare that is most attractive to me reflects the darkness of humanity and the human condition. And it is uh, that darkness in human nature that I think has really contributed so much to creating the situation that uh, we are all navigating right now. So I did not want to further contribute to that by reciting a, a, a dark piece. So I looked and looked and I found something that I think ultimately is about not hiding one's light under a bushel, but being proactive, being big, being bright, being forward thinking, forward moving, going out into the world and creating change for the good uh, and that is from Troilus and Cressida, the piece I found, and it is Ulysses speaking to Achilles in the Grecian camp. The situation is that Achilles has taken to his tent because he, he is jealous of Ajax. And Ulysses goes to him and he says, Time hath my lord a wallet at his back wherein he puts alms for oblivion, a great-sized monster of ingratitudes. Those scraps are good deeds past, which are devoured as fast as they are made, forgot as soon as done. Perseverance, dear my lord, keeps honor bright. To have done is to hang, quite out of fashion, like a rusty mail in monumental mockery. Take the instant way. For honor travels in a strait so narrow where one but goes abreast. Keep then the path. For emulation hath a thousand sons that one by one pursue. If you give way, or hedge aside from the direct forthright, like to an entered tide, they all rush by and leave you hindmost. Or like a gallant horse fallen in first rank, lie there for pavement to the abject rear, or run and trampled on. Then what they do in present, though less than yours in past, must o'ertop yours. For time is like a fashionable host, that slightly shakes his parting guest by the hand, and with his arms outstretched as he would fly, grasps in the comer. Welcome ever smiles, and farewell goes out sighing. You know, I've always thought of this passage that it's as if uh, Shakespeare gave himself the writing prompt, don't rest on your laurels, now go. (laughs) 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 But Mike, maybe you can tell me what I'm missing you're getting a lot. I I think that sometimes Shakespeare isn't writing with a motto in mind, but here there's an argument. And the main argument is perseverance keeps honor bright. Keep doing the things that are the right things to do, even if it means that you're on a very, very narrow path. This is his don't let up speech. And I'm so glad that Keith picked it because it it does require the energy and the drive of the speaker, and he delivered it well. But it also makes demands on us. Oh, no, that is a really good message. 
for now. Um, just a moment ago, a few moments ago, we heard from Fran Kranz, and he was in director Casey Wilder Mott's Midsummer. Uh, and now we have this from Casey. Hi, this is Casey Wilder Mott. I directed an indie film adaptation of A Midsummer Night's Dream. And I've chosen a passage from The Tempest. And it's uh, something that I really like in times of difficulty because, well, it speaks to, uh, I think, the, the capacity for wonder and, uh, and beauty to be in all things. So this is Caliban from The Tempest. Be not afeard. The isle is full of noises, sounds, and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. Sometimes a thousand twangling instruments will hum about mine ears, and sometimes voices that, if I then had waked after long sleep, will make me sleep again. And then in dreaming, the clouds methought would open and show riches ready to drop upon me that, when I waked, I cried to dream again. Oh, that's so poignant. It speaks to hope, but it also uh, speaks to escape. His dreams are so rich that when he wakes up, he cries because he wishes he could dream again. And that resonates with me because I think there are moments when I I really do just want to be taken away into a story. And I I don't want to read the news. I really want some other source of diversion or some other source of insight. I think, too, that one of the things that makes this passage so hopeful and beautiful at this moment is that it's really hard not to experience the world as toxic. The moment we walk out our doors, we feel as if we're in a toxic place. And what this passage reminds us of is how beautiful our world is. And even in a time like our time, in a moment of plague, we cannot, we should not forget that we live in a very, very beautiful world. That's oh, wonderful. gosh, take what Gail said. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm thinking that, you know, here we are looking to Shakespeare in our time. But I'm, I'm, did people do this way back when? I mean, Mike, you started our conversation talking about commonplaces that people would write down lines and quotes and maybe use them in their own writing or use them at dinner parties. But did you look to fiction, to literature, for comfort, because wasn't that what the Bible was for in religion? Well, that is what the Bible was for. And if you were an Elizabethan in a a difficult moment, you might have your little pocket copy of the Psalms. We have many of beautiful copies at the Folger Library of little pocket Psalters, and that's for your pocket. You put it in your pocket, and when you have a quiet moment, you can pull it out and read a psalm and get some solace from that. And you you might look to theology. I mean, most of the titles in the rare book vault of the Folger Library are really uh, books of theology, and that's where your comfort comes. And I think you might get it from poetry, because one of my favorite copies of, of rare books in the library is the poetry of John Donne. And at the very back, there is an index of passages by topic, age, death, death's discipline, fortune. And with the page numbers of the poem that the, the writer wants to return to, what you would not do is go to the place of Shakespeare. You wouldn't go to anybody's place, I don't think. You might read the histories to read about your history, but I don't think you would go there for spiritual comfort. What we really have done, starting in the 19th century, really, is to have Shakespeare occupy the place in our souls, really, that the Bible also occupies. And sometimes Shakespeare replaces the Bible for us. Well, on a different tack, uh, some of our friends of the podcast picked up on this theme of being isolated from each other and our means of making sense of the world, as in going to the theater and going to movies and, and group events and culture. And one of them is Lauren Gunderson. She wrote the play The Book of Will about the creation of the first folio. And she sent us something that speaks to this. My name is Lauren Gunderson, and I'm a playwright. 
The opening prologue to Henry V has been so much on my mind these days because of the way that Shakespeare enlists the audience into completing the story he's about to tell. He asks the audience to use their power of imagination and invention to complete the story, which we do all the time in the theater, but so much more now because that's the only way to give life to these plays in our separations. Shakespeare asks us to directly put our creative minds to work to help him tell the story. I hear that as such an intimate direction now than I've ever heard it before. It makes me believe that all we need to do to have great theater is to have artist, audience, and language. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Then should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars, and at his heels, leashed in like hounds, should famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. But pardon, and gentles all, that flat, unraised spirits that have dared on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object, can this cockpit hold the vasty fields of France? Or may we cram within this wooden O the very casks that did affright the air at Agincourt? Oh, pardon, since a crooked figure may attest in little place a million, and let us ciphers to this great account on your imaginary forces work. Suppose within the girdle of these walls are now confined two mighty monarchies, whose high, unprepared, and abutting fronts the perilous narrow ocean parts asunder. Piece out our imperfections with your thoughts. Into a thousand parts divide on man and make imaginary puissance. Think when we talk of horses that you see them printing their proud hooves in the receiving earth, for tis your thoughts that now must deck our kings. Carry them here and there, jumping o'er times, turning the accomplishment of many years into an hourglass, for the which supply admit me chorus to this history, whose prologue like your humble patience pray, gently to hear, kindly to judge, our play. I love hearing that in isolation. I mean, often I'm still kind of getting into my seat and getting into my Shakespeare head when, when, it, when you get hit with that prologue in the theater. But here you can really dwell in it. I think it really speaks to the fact that theater creates community. And so to celebrate community, as Lauren just did, at a time when we're longing for community and we're missing community, and we need to be reminded, as this passage I think really does remind us so powerfully, of the part that we all play in the building of community. Yeah, that, and also just our work. I mean, so many of us don't have our work and how that brings us back to ourselves. Uh, we, we have another uh, former guest, Ryan North, who sent us something that also relates to his craft. He's a writer. Let's listen. Hi, I'm Ryan North, and I am the author of uh, two volumes of Choose Your Own Path, Shakespeare. One is called To Be or Not To Be, which is an adaptation of Hamlet, obviously. And the other is called Romeo and or Juliet, and it is an adaptation of uh, Romeo and Juliet. I wanted to read to you uh, a passage from Shakespeare that I always find comforting, and it's probably not for the reason you expect. So it is perhaps the most famous passage, which is the To Be or Not To Be speech from Hamlet. What I love about it is how good it is, but also how bad it could have been. And we can see a taste of that if you look at the Bad Court, or the first publishing of the play, which was probably a pirated version. It's really bad. So I'll read you the good version first. And you've heard it before. It goes like this. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them, to die, to sleep no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is hair to, 
Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. Very familiar words, beautiful words. And I find it comforting to know how bad they could have been. Because <laughs> we all start with bad words when we're writing. So here's the bad chordo version. To be or not to be. Aye, there's the point. To die, to sleep. Is that all? Aye, all. No, to sleep, to dream. I marry, there it goes. For in that dream of death, when we awake, and born before an everlasting judge, from whence no passenger ever returned, the undiscovered country, and we're already ahead of where the play actually gets in the good version. <laughs> it's uh, comforting for me to know that uh, even Shakespeare can be bad, and that first drafts can be bad, and we can get better. Even though this wasn't the first draft, it's just a, a knockoff, half-remembered version of his play. For some reason, seeing the bad version makes me appreciate the good version even better. And I hope, uh, you know, perhaps it's a bit on the nose, but seeing the bad version of reality right now uh, will make us appreciate the good version when it comes back and we can hug our neighbors again all the more. Thanks. <laughs> Just when we thought of the show, I never expected someone to send in Shakespearean schadenfreude. <laughs> I think a lot of people have actually memorized at least the first couple of lines of that speech. So it is one of those things we carry around with us. But I, I, I'm glad he pointed us to the both the good version and then the one from the so-called bad quarto, which really is, it's almost like a cliff note summary of a very important argument about how we make decisions, big ones like, do I stay and persist? Do I keep going? Or do I just look into the future that I cannot really know? You know, the future could be death, in which case all questions come to an end. And I think that's a real possibility in this speech. But I think more generally, it just talks about the fact that we really don't know what's next. And because of that, the heartaches and the shocks could come just from being alive one day after another. And I do think Hamlet comes down on the, on the side of of persisting. Well, this is a good time, I think, to play a selection from our guest, Molly Booth, because she chose something that speaks to really universal global uncertainty. Hi, my name is Molly Horton Booth, and I'm the author of Shakespeare-inspired YA books, Saving Hamlet and Nothing Happened. I'm also the founder and artistic director of the LGBTQ inclusive educational theater nonprofit, Brave New Shakespeare. I think one of the most difficult things about the coronavirus quarantine we're going through right now is the uncertainty. This is such a scary time and we all want to know when it will be over and how it will work out. So I'm going to read a passage from Shakespeare's comedy Twelfth Night that deals with a complicated situation. In Act 2, Scene 2, Viola has just discovered that she's in love with Orsino, Orsino is in love with Olivia, and Olivia is in love with her. This monologue ends in one of my favorite lines in all of Shakespeare. Viola realizes that she doesn't have control over any of it, and she just has to wait. This speech is always comforting for me, but I guess especially right now, so I wanted to read it and share it in hopes that it brings you some comfort too. I left no ring with her. What means this lady? Fortune forbid my outside hath not charmed her. She made good view of me, indeed so much that methought her eyes had lost her tongue. For she did speak and starts distractedly. She loves me, sure. The cunning of her passion invites me in this churlish messenger. None of my lord's rings. Why, he sent her none. I am the man. If it be so as tis, poor lady, she were better love a dream. Disguise. I see thou art a wickedness wherein the pregnant enemy does much. How Easy it is for the proper false in women's waxen hearts to set their forms. Alas, our frailty is the cause, not we. For such as we are made of, such we be. How will this fetch? My master loves her dearly, and I, poor monster, fond as much on him. And she, mistaken, seems to dote on me. What will become of this? As I am man, my state is desperate for my master's love, and as I am woman, now alas the day... What thriftless sighs shall poor Olivia breathe? O oh, time, 
Thou must untangle this, not I. It is too hard a knot for me to untie. I love this passage, what but a it's a curious speech. one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, curious one to choose for this time. What do you guys think? I love this speech. <laughs> I love this speech. It's one of my favorite speeches in Shakespeare. You just imagine Viola emerging from the sea. She thinks she has lost her brother. She's in a new land. She has no idea where she is, and she has to improvise. This is such a great speech, and it captures the actual thought process of someone figuring out, I really don't know how this will turn out. And she concludes by saying, I can't figure it out. And soon she is in her new role, she's improvising, she's making choices without having all the information, and that is life. And it's really life now, and I think that's why this speech is so good. Oh, that is wonderful, and, and why, don't we, why don't we stay with not only the theme of uncertainty, but also in this place of love, since we're winding down. And that's the subject of the next quote that we have from Paul Wurstein. And Gail, I think no one is more qualified to explain who Paul Wurstein is than, than you, so take it away. Uh, Paul Wurstein was, is the general editor of the Folger Shakespeare editions. Uh, he was the co-general editor with Barbara Mowat, who died in 2017. And the two of them created this magnificent monument that we call the Folger Shakespeare Library Editions. He's a very distinguished Canadian textual scholar. He teaches at the University of Western Ontario, and he is very brilliant. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love, which alters when it alteration finds, or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark, whose worth's on no one, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error, and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. I love that sonnet. Well, this, of course, is the sonnet that one hears at weddings a lot. And I think that perhaps the reason Paul picked it is that one of the contrasts that the sonnet is built around is between what changes and what doesn't change. What the speaker wants to say is that there is a North Star, there is an unchanging in the world, and we can attach ourselves to it. And that is love, love which does not alter when it alteration finds. And I do think that in a time of tremendous uncertainty, being reminded of that which we can count on, and that is the love that we give and the love we receive, is really an important thing to hang on to. Yeah, I think that's what really speaks to me from it now. That compassion is so, it's always necessary, but it's so much more necessary in a crisis that you just give that every extra inch because we're all under so much stress. I love this sonnet because it says, love has the capacity not to change. And people's feelings change and the world changes a lot. So this is a very special kind of love that the writer is tapping into. And I think it's rare even in the best of times. Well, this is so uh, wonderful and comforting. And I hate to think of, of this coming to an end, but we are coming to an end. And our last thought comes from our guest, Stefan Wolfert. Let's hear what he's been thinking and doing these days. My name is Stefan Wolfert, and I run the Decruit program that uses Shakespeare to heal trauma in fellow veterans, military veterans like myself. And uh, during this time, uh, we're teaching online Decruit classes. Um, and the passage we've been ending class with, after 90 minutes in isolation where we're disembodied heads on Zoom, and we're so often feeling like, as Antonio Damaso puts it, Descartes error and we are the epitome of Descartes error being these disembodied heads I am um, that we end with a positive statement of Shakespeare's in his rhythm 
while we're making contact with our own bodies and even seeing other people. Um, and the passage we've been ending class with, um, so that after 90 minutes of sharing all of this, something to change our, our view, perhaps about ourselves, is a line, from, uh, three lines from Richard III. It's just, it seems perhaps ironic, but it's just a lifted uh, three lines, um, more about the change of reflection, because there's so much coming at us and we can feel so down. And the passage is, I do mistake my person all this while, Upon my life, she finds, although I cannot, myself to be a marvelous, proper man. And the reason I like that is because it change, it's the obvious. It's changing our view. But it's been a really powerful passage to reinforce our 90 minutes together and to carry through until the next time we see each other. To remember that we can view ourselves positively as others see us in a positive frame. Mike Gale, you are both marvelous, proper humans, and I thank you so (laughs) much for this. And also thanks to all our contributors who took the time to record these messages and readings. And and maybe, Mike, you could could take us out with uh, the credits to our podcast. And thank you again. Thank you, Barbara. It was such a treat. Thank you, Barbara. It was a great idea, and... It was really fun, and I'm so glad that Gail and I could do the two-hander on this. It was just just really great. Our podcast, One Thing to Rejoice and Solace In, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical assistance from Paul Luke and Andrew Feliciano at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. As always, if you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited and you want to tell people who don't know about it yet, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.